0: In the name of God, the most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Muhammad Respected brothers, sisters, viewers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome once again to our series Life the Islamic Answer where we were discussing now the topic of the community of knowledge. We established the importance of the collective dimension in Islam, we established the notion of the community within the community and we established specifically the idea of a community of knowledge being one of those communities within the larger community. We had therefore started to discuss the who and the how. And the big question around the who is who belongs to the community of knowledge. We had already established earlier in the series that there has to be a learner and there has to be a teacher who else belongs to that community. We don't really call it a community when it is just made up of those two ingredients or those two elements. And our conclusion from those narrations and the verses of the Holy Quran is that everyone who understands and who believes in these teachings must find a place in the community of knowledge. So, in short, everyone must belong to the community of knowledge. Now, they don't necessarily all play the same roles or the same parts, but they all belong to that community, even if it is in the type or the manner of belonging that the Holy Prophet or the Imams referred to as istima, someone who listens to what is going on between learners and teachers or to be of those who love what is going on between the learners and the teachers so inshallah all that is clear and we started to discuss in a little bit more detail the how so the last time we met we added one more ingredient that was touching on both to wrap up our discussion about the who and inshallah as we said we're going to come back, I'll add a couple of remarks about the who in a moment. We said we also have a lot of narrations that tell us who should be the source of knowledge in that community. So there is a process of selecting that should also be planned, organized, strategic on the part of the community in who to place in that position to be the source of knowledge, of religious knowledge specifically in that community. And so we spent a little bit more time on that the last time we met, and then we started to talk about the how. There is a discussion that I would like to add to the who, and I hinted to it last time, and I didn't explain why I'm keeping it until later in the community of knowledge, where in reality it should belong here about the who, who belongs to the community of knowledge. There are two specific categories in our communities that I think need to be addressed directly. The problem is that the methodology that we have proposed for this entire series does not naturally lend itself to discussing those two categories. So I'm leaving them because it will include other sources of knowledge. The methodology I'm referring to is that We said we want a strict adherence to what we find in the verses of the Holy Quran and the narrations. Now, in some cases, we have to take those as general rules, and this is exactly what we will do. In other cases, we have very specific teachings about the specific uh, needs that we have in our lives. This is ideally what we have, and this is what we've been discussing until now the amount of information in a detailed way that we found in the narrations and the verses of the Qur'an regarding, for instance, the learner and the teacher. And as we shall see, and when we continue with this heading, we are going to find other uh, instructions, very detailed narrations and instructions regarding, for instance, the types of knowledge that we should focus on. And this is going to be the next big heading in the series. But sometimes we want to talk or we want to look into what our religion says about specific questions we may have. And this is the point of this series, by the way. This is why we called it life. It has to be things that we can apply in our daily lives, lives that are becoming much more complex than they used to be before. And things are much more messy and, and nuanced and subtle. And so we try to find the general principles when we don't have... Explicit or direct mentions of what we need in the narrations and in the verses The two categories that I think need to be addressed when we talk about the community First woman and sisters This is not really I think a very big controversial need to be addressed in this way based on my understanding of our communities But I think in general, when we hear about the discourse of Islam in general and how Islam is discussed and how perhaps women are presented and there is ample literature around this, how Islam is presented as being a religion that discourages, if not forbids, the learning of women or girls and encourages the learning of men and boys, then this is something that we need to address, even if it's quickly. We want to just address it so that the topic is not left entirely untouched when we're talking about our communities. That's first. The second, but again, this one is going to require that we go a little bit outside of what we find strictly in the narrations and in the verses of the Holy Quran, and we'll address that when we talk about it. The second element or the second role or ingredient in the community of knowledge is a role that has emerged with time and so it's very natural that this role has not been addressed directly and this is today the role that we would call the intellectual or the educated person or the expert in all those cases this is someone whose expertise is not religion they are not a scholar of religion they don't necessarily have an advanced understanding of religion They might be a doctor, they might be a historian, they might be a linguist, they might be an economist, and so on and so forth. What is the role of these people in a community of knowledge based on what our religion is saying? This is not directly addressed because those roles did not exist in this way, nor was the relationship between religion and life what we have today. It was very different 14 centuries ago. Things were a lot more black and white. You knew exactly where to go to find the answer you needed from whom. Today this world is very different. And there's perhaps a discussion that is not usually had because it's considered more technical. And there are no clear answers to this. This requires digging and coming up with your own theories. So I'm keeping it until a little bit later in our discussion on the community of knowledge, just so that we distinguish between what is clearly stated and we're taking as-is from the Holy Qur'an and the teachings of Ahlul Bayt, versus those things where we need to extrapolate a little bit more, think a little bit more, reflect, and come up with our own answers based on the general principles that we got from the verses of the Qur'an and the narrations. So inshallah, this discussion about the who belongs to the community of knowledge will be complemented by those two quickly, but it will be complemented by those 2 subcategories that we haven't addressed yet directly. Even though indirectly, we've definitely addressed both of them. That's the first uh, mention. The second thing is we started to talk about the how. So today we want to continue our discussion about the how. When we're talking about communities of knowledge, how is this knowledge being received? How is it being shared? How is it being transmitted? And inshallah, later in the series, we're going to come back to this. So this is not going to be a full discussion on the how. We're going to need other elements that we're going to be exposed to a little bit later in the series. So until now, We've talked about, when we talked about the gatherings of knowledge, we said that there is an emphasis, there is an insistence in our religion that people gather around knowledge. And that you do it in person. That you see people and you talk to them and they interact with you and you interact with them. And this is the main mechanism through which knowledge is received, shared, transmitted, reflected on. And so this is important, and this would require more reflection on our part on why is it that our religion insisted on this. Today, inshallah, we're going to continue with that. So we already talked about, so I'm going to try not to spend too much time on this. We've talked about perhaps a special role for community centers or centers of religion, mosques, husainiyat, community centers, whatever we call them, to play a special role here. And we're going to see a couple of references to this a little bit later today. And something perhaps that we have to clarify. One, two, given what we've already seen around gatherings of knowledge, I think there is clearly a need for planning, for organizing ahead and being strategic as a community. We need to plan ahead. What are the types of knowledge that we need to emphasize on? Who should we get to talk specifically about this? What's the best means for us to gather together around this? Once a week or more? When in the week? Who is the program for? These are very simple trivial questions, but they should not be left to randomness given what we've covered until now. Okay? More than that. That the Gatherings are taking place around the main theme, the main purpose of the gathering is knowledge. We may gather for all sorts of other things, all sorts of other purposes. They're all valid, especially the more spiritual purposes, where your spirituality is getting recharged. You feel better. You recited a bit of Quran, you recited supplications, du'a, you remembered Ahlulbayt, bayt All that is valid and crucially important. But these gatherings that address those things are not formally gatherings of knowledge. You can't, in a lot of these, cannot really say afterwards, I learned this, this and that. I was able to ask. I received a religious education. If that takes place, great. That's the purpose. You got two check marks instead of one. That's great. That means it was well-planned. The content was good, was valid, was competently delivered. But we are now emphasizing on a part that is perhaps not emphasized on enough, which is the acquisition of knowledge. In this case, this is a community of knowledge. So how you acquire the knowledge, how you can ask your questions and interact with it becomes very important. And this is where we have to rethink, therefore, are we creating a space for ourselves for this to happen? And if not, then what can we do to go in that direction? So all of this we talked about. When we talked about the different groups of people that belong to the community of knowledge, we said, lucky for us, that our religion says it's not just the person learning and the person teaching. It also leaves space for those who are listening in. And those who love those types of gatherings. If we focus specifically on those who are listening in, and we saw that they were presented in different ways. They were talked about, for instance, as being al-mustami'een or al-mustama'. In other narrations, there was al-mujalasa, someone who is sitting in those same gatherings. So you're not an active participant in either of the other two groups. You're simply someone who sits in or who listens in to what is happening. In those cases, clearly, beyond the fact that this is more inclusive, clearly it's talking about gatherings that are taking place in person. So this is just a hint about the importance of the gatherings, and we're going to come back to that, inshallah. And we also saw the importance in here, we could add it to, of there being questions that are answered and there being discussions that are taking place. That you share back and forth, you share what you know and they share back with you what they know. That you ask and they answer. And this is not always happening or happening in the best way when it is not happening in person. We add all of that to the in-person. We already saw a hadith multiple throughout the series. We mentioned one as a reminder, the frequency. Imam al for instance, was repeating from the Holy Prophet وآله, that a man should at least be dedicating time once a week. So we have to see. Perhaps there are times or there are needs where once a week is not enough. And there's a difference between once a week 10 minutes versus once a week, six hours. And in what type, in what format is this taking place? What exactly is taking place this once a week? And is it enough? Okay, but we saw that there's at least this minimum mentioned. So if we combine it with the gatherings, that already starts to give us a bit of a program. We saw multiple narrations talk about the importance of, and some of these were mentioned more than one, of them mentioned in the same narration, and we saw specific narrations about each one of them separately, which is the need to meet, the need to discuss, the, re- the need to remind each other, and we saw different reasons. Many of them were spiritual, that in, it invigorates the hearts, it brings the hearts back to life, it, that, that it polishes the hearts, right when these people are simply sitting and you're seeing one of your brothers in faith or a sister in faith and you're just discussing things related to religion doesn't look like you're doing something really out of the ordinary but this is explicitly mentioned in this way so now inshallah we continue with the next hadith if my computer cooperates the next hadith related to the gatherings. And again, the gatherings being in-person, the importance of the in-person. So this first hadith, a reminder that it will add spiritual benefits. So the Holy Prophet وآله, says to Abu Dharr, فَإِنَّهَا رَوْضَةٌ مِنْ رِيَاضِ الْجَنَّةِ تنزل عليهم الرحمة والمغفرة كما ينطر من السماء يجلسون بين أيديهم مذنبين ويقومون مغفورين لهم والملائكة يستغفرون لهم ما داموا جلوسا أو جلوسا عندهم وإن الله ينظر إليهم فيغفر للعالم والناظر والمحبي لهم So in English the Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وآله is telling a great companion Abu Dharr Indeed seize the opportunities to sit in the gatherings of scholars. For these gatherings are some of the gardens of paradise. So the gathering itself, it doesn't look like you're sitting in paradise. But the Holy Prophet is saying the reality of that type of sitting and gathering is that you're actually now sitting in paradise. You just don't realize it. Mercy and forgiveness descend upon them like rain from the heavens. They sit in their gatherings as sinners and they rise having been forgiven. The angels seek forgiveness for them as long as they remain sitting in their presence. And then this is the part and God looks at them granting forgiveness to the scholar, the learner, the observer and the one who loves them. The slight difference in this hadith from the ones that we saw previously, these categories, so again, the sitting is happening in person. There's a gathering in person. The gathering is around knowledge, given everything mentioned in the hadith. And here the Holy Prophet added one more category. Before it was those who sit in. There's mujalasa there's musa'alah, which is here. There is someone who is asking. But the Holy Prophet here was very clear. There is alim. Okay, the alim may be doing all sorts of things. We're not sure. But the Holy Prophet says wal muta'allim. So there's someone learning. So this is a gathering of knowledge. And then one, Nadir. Nadir is someone who's observing what's going on. They're not actively participating. So this is yet one more way to say, everybody else needs to be part of this. Well lahum. This one we've talked about previously. So again, I don't want to spend too much time on this hadith, I think clear enough. Brings us back to the notion of the community, but here we're focused on the importance of the gatherings themselves with all the spiritual benefits mentioned. The next hadith, again, gatherings in person and their importance. This one is going to add yet one more dimension. This is a dimension related to our duty towards knowledge. Now, of course, this is a little bit more advanced, but this is our chance to talk about more advanced things. Notice how in this hadith, the Imam is going to give a very different reason for why we have to sit. Most of us are always going to be focused on ourselves. If I attend a gathering and the gathering has to do with knowledge, well, my selfish reason for attending is I want to acquire knowledge. No problem. But there could be other purposes. Someone might be a lot more spiritual. And so they say, I want to attend that gathering. I may not learn anything. I may already know everything that's being discussed, but this is a gathering of knowledge. And I want to encourage it. I want to attend. Maybe I'll learn something. Maybe it'll force me to reflect differently on things. It doesn't matter. My attendance, though, is because I know God loves these types of gatherings. So I will attend during that time. I want to put that time for that type of gathering. That's a more spiritual reason. Now, and there could be others. I'm sure you could think of them. Notice, I'm trying to go a little bit faster. Notice in this hadith, what the imam is going to give as a duty. So this is not a duty towards yourself. This is not because you're trying to gain knowledge. This is not because you're trying to acquire the, let's say the spiritual benefits of those gatherings. The imam says, الْحَدِيثِ إِلَّا يَدْرُسْ أَوْ يُدْرَسْ So Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Visit each other. Remind each other or discuss with each other or mention to each other the hadith. The hadith could be discourse on knowledge or it could be specifically narrations, right? A hadith. So the Ma'am saying, Visit each other and discuss, interact around this type of religious knowledge. For if you do not, it will disappear. Or if it's a hadith, then they will disappear. The duty here is completely different. As I said, it's a little bit more advanced. It takes someone who is more subtle, who has more of a concern this way, to think this way about religion. You understand that perhaps your duty in this world is not just limited to you and your selfish needs today. I would refer to this perhaps as a historical duty. You are playing a point in history a role at that point in history. What is your role at this point in history? There has to be awareness around this. The imam is hinting to one of these purposes, one of these roles that we're supposed to feel. The imam says, if you do not have these gatherings of knowledge where this type of hadith is being discussed, where the hadith of the Holy Prophet are being discussed, then that knowledge will disappear. The knowledge may be in the books and websites. Muhammad Ali al salam says, no, you have to get together and discuss that knowledge. What preserves that knowledge is not that it's contained in books. And we will come back to the books later. They're very important. What will keep the knowledge alive and it will pass down to the next generations is that you gather and discuss it. This is a completely different type of duty that not everyone will appreciate or understand. When we perform an act, we said that as good believers, every act that we perform should be performed with an intent, an intention. Even acts that may look trivial to others, or even acts that may not look like they are religious acts, you can still perform it with a spiritual purpose, a spiritual intent. You may eat to eat or you may eat so that your body becomes healthier and better so that you can serve the Lord with this body. Two very different purposes. You're performing the same act. Here you're acquiring knowledge or attending the gatherings of knowledge and the main purpose or at least a secondary purpose is that you are preserving the knowledge by these gatherings. So, first, I think from this hadith, the manner in which the Imam says, because he says, he's saying that you visit each other, this is again not something you can do by yourself. And the manner in which the Imam is saying it, when he's using this obligation, it's a tone that there's a duty to do this, therefore, this is a collective duty, that this has to happen in every community. So there's a collective duty to do this. Secondly, the duty is towards the knowledge itself, not myself and me learning from it, not myself and what I can learn. I can perhaps do that from a book. Now here the imam saying you're doing that so that knowledge itself remains preserved and it can be passed down the generations. And here we can have a whole discussion on how this is perhaps exactly what happened As good as Muslims are or were compared to everyone else in preserving knowledge Clearly this is what actually happened People did not heed people did not listen to or apply this teaching from Imam Ali Alayhi salam sufficiently and So we believe today that the majority of the knowledge is all lost it disappeared exactly like the Imam said It's not for lack of books is that these gatherings were not taking place enough. And sometimes people object to this. They say, we have a lot of knowledge, and I've used these examples in the past. Two quick examples to show how much we have lost, despite everything we have still recorded and access to. One example would be that today, we all read in the Holy Qur'an that in Surah Al-Jum'ah, that the Jum'ah prayer was taking place. And the Holy Prophet would stand there and deliver two sermons, and then they would perform the prayer. And the Qur'an talks about this. Clearly an incident, or multiple times that incident happened. Well, the Holy Qur'an tells the Prophet that when they see trade come in, merchandise come in, they leave you. Standing there delivering your sermon, they leave you and they go to the trade. Right? This is the end of Surah Al-Jum'ah. They leave you all alone, standing there. Clearly this is something the Holy Qur'an is historically documenting that Salat Al-Jum'ah is happening. How many times did it happen? Years. Surah Al-Jum'ah was revealed a few years before the departure of the Holy Prophet ﷺ. Let's say one year, minimum. One year has 52 weeks. We should have at least 52 sermons, documented sermons from the Holy Prophet of what he said in those sermons. What did he talk about in the sermons of the Friday? Maybe not 52, 50, 40, 30, 10, 2. There are no sermons of the Holy Prophet on a Friday. There are, he starts the sermon with these words, and so they may have become a little bit customary to hear. But that's it. Where's the rest of the sermon? Why wasn't it documented? We have a lot of details, other details. I would guess the content of those sermons is a lot more important than those details. They're lost forever. Another perhaps documented, yet we can't agree on it, how many times a day did the Muslims see the Holy Prophet perform the wudu Or stand to pray? And today, if you ask Muslims, all of them believers, how did the Holy Prophet perform his wudu? Would you not think that this would be something very well documented? If this was documented and discussed in the time of the Holy Prophet and in the generations that followed, how can it get lost? or the manner in which it gets distorted, is not clear. Where did the distortion come from? So we have to go through tremendous pain to get back to reconstructing that indirectly, bits and pieces, still with probabilities. It means that this did not happen. This is exactly what happened in the past. But the Imam is describing, people did not get together and discuss knowledge. And perhaps there were times when it was impossible. If you did that, you would not live for long, depending on which group of people you belong to. And so, this for us means let's be grateful. Seize the freedom that you have now to gather and to discuss and to hold these types of meetings around religion. You don't know what tomorrow holds, you don't know how the world will change, and then this becomes impossible. As it was, and many of your parents, if you talk to them, you'll see that this was at least risky and dangerous in many many contexts. Today, we're in a setting where it is not. In six months or two years or ten years, things might change again. And a lot would get lost that way. In any case, next hadith. From Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, and so this one talks about the importance of these gatherings. It talks about some of the spiritual benefits. But it adds another layer to these gatherings that we haven't really talked about. So I wanted to mention it at least just to touch on it. And this is a theme mentioned in many of the narrations of Ahlul Bayt, السلام, which has to do with what they refer to as ihya to revive our affair, to keep our affair, Ahlul Bayt say, our cause, to keep our cause alive. And we have multiple indications and teachings on how to do that. In this hadith, you're going to see that there's a mention to that. So we have to be aware of this. So Imam sadiq salam says, bil hadith وَبِالْحَدِيثِ إِحْيَاءُ أَمْرِنَا فَرَحِمَ اللَّهُ مَنْ أحيا أَمْرَنَا Imam sadiq says, meet, so again in person, meet and discuss knowledge. For it is through this discussion or through these ahadith, depending on how you understand hadith, through these discussions or these ahadith, that the sullied hearts get polished or get cleansed. And so the rain, the Imam is talking about ra'in. When the water stands still for a very long time and it becomes kind of smelly and it becomes sullied and it usually has rot in it and other things, that's one way. Or it can be filth in general or it can be rust specifically. Rain is used in all those meanings. The Quran talks about it. It says, that type of filth has accumulated on their hearts, the Qur'an says. So this is something that happens. So the imam is saying, by meeting and having these types of discussions around the hadith and around ilm, this is how the sullied hearts get cleansed, through those discussions. And then the imam continues, and it is through these discussions that our affair is brought alive or revived. May God have mercy upon the servant or the one who revives our affair. And these are very famous lines that we usually hear every year, especially in Muharram. And we have hints here and there in the different narrations of Ahlul Bayt السلام, What does it mean and how to do that? So clearly you are reviving, you are bringing to life the affair of Ahlul Bayt, the cause of Ahlul Bayt السلام, when you're directly talking about them, when you're reminding people of what they went through, what their lives were like, what they stood for, what they sacrificed for, that part should be clear. But how else? So we have all these indications in the narrations on how to perform this الأمر, how to revive the cause of Ahlul Bayt. In this hadith, the Imam is not saying specifically, go ahead and talk to people about us talk to people about our sacrifices, talk to people about our tragedies. No. No, I'm saying you sit together and you discuss knowledge. This is our cause. Our cause is true knowledge. Discuss true knowledge. That will polish the hearts. It will cleanse the hearts. And it brings our cause to life by itself. Okay? So specifically here, we could add this is perhaps one more hint or indication as communities when we plan and we organize these types of gatherings of knowledge that perhaps there has to be some sort of link, we have to ensure that there's always a link back to Ahlulbayt somehow according to the hadith clearly make sure that at least their ahadith or the ahadith of the holy prophet are Mentioned, That would be the easiest way. If you are repeating, if you are reflecting on, if you are discussing their teachings with their own words, you're keeping their cause alive. That's the easiest, simplest way. The secondary meaning to this, of course, and I'm do- I don't want to spend too much time on it, the deeper meaning is that if you are discussing true knowledge, then but that by itself is the true cause of Ahlul Bayt. That's the whole reason why we have Ahlul Bayt. So make sure that you are following their path, that you're bringing or discussing, reflecting on truth. That is their cause. That's a deeper meaning here. Maybe one quick hadith and I will stop. This hadith has to do with Ihya al-Amr. Just so that I don't leave the topic without any mention, very quickly. So, open a bracket. An al an Abi Ja'far alayhi So this is one of the companions of Imam Sadiq, خيثمة, he went to visit the Imam. So he travelled and he went to the Imam, delivering messages, delivering money from the followers, the lovers of al Bayt at the time of Imam Sadiq. Finally, he meets the Imam. He sits with them. They have the whole conversation, and now Khaythama says, "Now I'm about to leave. That's it. I'm going back to my homeland." Aradtu an so I'm bidding farewell to the Imam. فَقَالَ ya Khaythama. So now the Imam has a special message that he wants to take. He wants him to take back to the people that he came from. salam. وأوصهم بتقوى الله وأوصهم أن يعود غنيهم على فقيرهم وقويهم على ضعيفهم وأن يشهد حيهم جنازة ميتهم وأن يتلاقوا في بيوتهم فإن لقاء بعضهم بعضًا في بيوتهم حياة لأمرنا رحم الله Abden أحيا أمرنا. So the Imam says. Khaytham himself says, so I intended to bid him farewell. That's it, I'm leaving. So he said, oh Khaytham. So he's talking to him, but this is really talking to us. right? This is the message of the Imam to his Shia. At that time, in that context, where the Imam cannot really openly talk about everything. There are spies living in the houses of the Imams when you study their lives. So he says, convey our greetings. The Imam sends his salams to all of his shia, convey our greetings to our followers, and advise them to have taqwa. Start with, have fear of God. Remember God and be mindful of God and everything. Wa awsihim, so that was a wasiyah. That's a first wasiyah, the Imam did not put them together. And the Quran, the Quran is very specific. Sometimes the Quran uses one term for a series of things. And sometimes it repeats the term, Allah Rasul. Okay, so it says obey God and the Messenger. That's one obedience. It means they're the same obedience. And sometimes it says, Allah, rasul There's something different here. The Quran would not add obey God and obey the messenger. What's different here? We have to dig. So you have to be very careful. You have to be very meticulous in this type of wording. The imam, we have to apply the same type of analysis when we read the words of the imams. The imam starts by saying, وَأَوْصِهِمْ That's a wasiyah. That's a testament that the imam is sending uh, an advice or a teaching or an order or a command that the imam is sending to his followers. Fear of God. And then, وَأَوْصِهِمْ Now it's the second wasiyah. وَأَوْصِهِمْ أَنْ يَعُودَ And instruct them that their wealthy or the wealthy one among them support the ones who are poor. And that those who are strong among them support those who are weak. And that those who are still alive attend the funerals of those of the or, and the processions of those who have passed away. And then the Imam adds, وَأَنْ يَتَلَاقَوْ فِي بُيُوتِهِمْ And ask them, or advise them, or let them meet in their homes. For indeed their meetings with one another in their homes is a revival of our affair. This is the term. See, it was mentioned about knowledge in general. Now the Imam is mentioning it in a different context. And بيوتهم, Let them meet in their homes. For indeed their meetings with one another, one another in their homes is a revival of our affair. May God have mercy on a servant who revives our affair. So this is not our topic. What the Imam is talking about here is outside of our topic. But clearly, if the Imam had one short message, one short letter to send to his Shia, this is one of them. We have many of these, by the way, from the imams. One of them has to do with the main message here is that the imam is emphasizing on the social dimension. This is social welfare today, we would call it. You look after one another. He gave three different examples, but of course the imam is not limiting his teachings to these three examples. So the rest of the time we completely forget each other, You know, if someone is in dire financial need, we might remember them. Someone passes away, we go attend the funeral or the procession. The imam is basically saying, have each other's backs. Be there for one another socially. Okay? But then he added, specifically, and visit each other in your homes. Now, if we want to specifically say, but why does the imam talk about the homes? He's not just saying gatherings. That could be a discussion. We were just focused on the gatherings. Here there's a discussion to be had on, but why the homes? In part, in large part, at that time, the Shia could not really just openly sit and talk about what the Imams are saying in their hadith. Unless you do a personal visit. You, your family, your friends go, you visit others, others visit you. This is a personal visitation. No issue with that. It should not bring attention to you on a religious ground, on a religious basis. So it should not put you in a danger zone, at risk, because you're just visiting someone at their home and they're visiting you in yours. This is more than, today we have a lot more luxury than that. At that time, this is perhaps one of the only ways that they could have those meetings and could have those discussions. And even then they had to be careful. That's one. But there are a lot more benefits to be added here. That when this is happening in your home, when you attend officially a gathering of knowledge, most likely not everyone in your home will have access to it or be able to attend. You might attend, but your parents don't. You might attend, but your siblings don't. You might attend, your wife doesn't. Your children don't. But what if it's a gathering that's taking place in your house? Generally speaking, at that time, everyone in the house is at least having access. You're hearing. Something is being discussed. Perhaps a two, three-year-old child is also already being exposed to certain types of knowledge, certain types of hadith and teachings they would not be exposed to. That's a different world that they're growing up into. So the Imam is saying, bring that world into your homes. That's one way you keep it alive. And this is usually something that the followers of Ahlul Bayt have maintained throughout the ages, throughout the generations. And then of course, at the end, the Imam is coming back to that same wording So there is all of that happening. There's a social dimension. But then the imam came back to, it's when you discuss the ahadith, make sure you take care of each other socially, visit each other and discuss the ahadith. And may God have mercy on the one who keeps our cause alive. So it has directly to do with the ahadith it has directly to do with the knowledge that is being discussed. So this is just a quick hint, a quick reminder, and a link to a another topic, which is Ihya Amr Ahlul Bayt, which is mentioned as we said, we hear about it a lot. Here are a couple of ahadith that are telling us the best way to do Ihya al to keep the cause of Ahlul Bayt alive. The best way to do it is through discussing their knowledge and to do that through gatherings it's one thing to do that by you know I write a book or I read a book it's another to do that live I discuss it with someone they discuss it with me this is how true knowledge as Imam Ali alayhi salam, was saying this is how true knowledge is preserved from being from disappearing from going away I'm gonna stop here inshallah will continue Next time we meet وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين